0: Lord, we know that this world often comes with sorrows, comes with trials, and yet we look forward to the day when we will know true peace. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, may we be guided and delight in the peace that your Son gives. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Frank Sinatra and others sing, Have Yourself... A merry little Christmas, let your heart be light. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. From now on, your troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas, make the yuletide gay. From now on, your troubles will be miles away. Through the years, we'll always be together. If the fates allow, hang a shining star upon the highest bough. You know, we often come to Christmas time with nostalgia about the past and thoughts of future bliss, like Frank saying, "We think that we'll always be together, that all our tr- troubles will be miles away, and we picture these idyllic Christmases. We're there with our family. Now, this is obviously not North Texas because snow is lightly falling." There's laughter, there's games, there's food, there's a sense of completeness, satisfaction, and joy. And yet while we sing and we long for this idyllic Christmas, we know that even if we could achieve it, it would end. Then it would be December 26th and 27th. And we know in our hearts that it isn't always true. We won't always be together Our troubles will not forever be out of sight. And so while these songs lead us into wanting these things, we know they can't happen permanently now. But they resonate with us because that's what God created us for. He made us to live in a world of perfect peace. This morning, as I mentioned earlier, we're beginning a series on the words of Christmas. And when you hear Christmas, many words come up in our society Maybe Nativity, or you often hear Nutcracker, or Frankincense, Santa Claus, Bethlehem, angels, carols, jolly, reindeer, wise men, stockings, presents, and over and over we could bring up all these words that people have connotations of Christmas with them. But over the next few weeks, we're going to look at five words. Words that were said at the first Christmas. Words that were said by the angels in Luke 2. Today, we're going to look at peace. And then next week, joy. The week following, glory. And then on Christmas Eve, light. And then after that, then Savior. And this morning as we focus on peace, we know that's what the angels declared. Because that's after the angel spoke, then it says, The heavenly hosts declared a multitude, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Centuries before this in Isaiah 9, 6-7, It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's what we like to sing about, and yet it will come true, just not in this life. And to look more into this, we need to really ask three questions. First, what is peace? Then why is it so hard to achieve? And lastly, is there hope for peace? If you have a bulletin, you can see that outline there. But first, what is peace? Now, it seems like an obvious answer. But as we look at it, we're going to see it's more than we normally think. If you look at Miriam Webster, as I did, you'll read that peace is a state of tranquility or quiet so there's a state of security and order, or it's freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or emotions, or harmony in personal relations, or a mutual concord or agreement between governments. In essence, there's really two realms of peace. There's peace externally, and there's peace internally. When we think of these, internally as being free from disquieting or um, troubling thoughts and emotions. And externally, so when there's harmony with us and other people. That could be individuals, or it could be governments. And yet, sometimes people only focus on one of these to the exclusion of the others. Many who have been influenced by Eastern religions will often say things like, Peace comes from within. Don't worry about it from without. And while we definitely should seek peace within, it's actually not until we found peace without. Peace with God through Jesus Christ, that we can ultimately know peace within. That's why Isaiah 26, 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So, as we trust in God, look externally, that we then can have that internal peace. And throughout the Bible, we see that God desires peace. I have a computer program that can look up various things in the Bible, and I Type the word peace. And there are over 340 references in the Bible to peace. The Bible is a book of peace. And in that, it refers to the inner tranquility, like we read in Isaiah 26. It refers to external harmony, such as when they go and say, We are at peace with these nations. But yet the biblical view of peace is much deeper. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And the idea of shalom is referring to completeness or wholeness. It's being completely the way God intended life going well and as it should. One place we see this is in Jeremiah 29, seven there in this portion of Jeremiah, there are Israelites who are in exile. They're in another land because they've been taken captive and they write to Jeremiah and say, well, what should we do now that we're living in this foreign land in Jeremiah's God speaks through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 7. And it says, seek the welfare of the city. But the word welfare is actually shalom. He's saying, seek its well-being. Seek its wholeness. Seek the good of that city. Seek its peace. It's shalom. And then he says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its shalom, its welfare, you will find your shalom or welfare in other words they are to seek for others the rich full life that god intended for them one biblical commentator writes shalom means more than peace and more than just welfare communicates it denotes a complete wholeness comes that comes from those who live in relationship with god so when we talk about peace this morning we're not just talking about are you calm inside We're talking about being restored to the way God intended this world to be. Being restored so that our relationship with God is characterized by love and not us having guilt or shame. Our relationship with others are restored so that we're at harmony and so much more than that. Yet, tragically, we all know in this world we don't experience such shalom. You know, we grieve because people have died. We still have conflict. We still have internal fear, guilt, and shame. We know that something is not right in this world. Billy Graham tells of Isadora Duncan. She was one of the foremost ballet dancers who danced before all the royalty of Europe. She was considered one of the greatest ballet dancers of all time. And though that was true, she said, I've never been alone that my heart did not ache My eyes fill with tears, and my hands tremble for a peace and joy I have never found. And many people are like that today. Externally, they may be famous. Externally, they may have lots of friends, but inside, they have no peace. So, how is it that we all know about peace? We can all say what it is, and yet we can't achieve it. And that's why we turn to that next. Why can't we achieve it? But before we answer that, we really have to realize our culture is one full of optimism and self-confidence. We boldly declare, you can be anything you want to be. You can conquer anything. You can do whatever you want to do. Universities boast that we are world changers. And we think that if you can get enough education, if you do enough science, and with enough determination, we can fix any and all problems. And in many respects, there are reasons to believe this. We can now talk to almost anyone, almost anywhere on the globe, with a little piece of plastic up to our ear. You know, that is an amazing thing that we just take for granted. We have landed on and then removed people from the moon. That is isn't fascinating. We have improved sanitation, surgeries, and medical care, so that the normal lifespan is now decades longer than it has been for many parts of life. We live in comfortable, climate-controlled homes. We have cupboards and refrigerators full of food. For better or worse, we're probably not too far from self-driving cars. We live in an amazing time that through education, through science, through determination, we have overcome so many problems, so many ills. And yet, while we have extended the length of life, and we've removed some of the severe hardships during life, We've not removed personal conflict. We've not removed death. We haven't gotten rid of personal shame, guilt, and feelings of despair. Though we are a lavishly rich country with the ability to get as much education as we desire, we are still not happy or whole people. Last year, we as a country spent $238 billion on mental health. Last year, we spent $725 billion on national defense. We spent a trillion dollars because we are not at peace. We're not at peace inside ourselves, and we're not at peace outside ourselves. We have all the research. We have all the science. We have everything, and we still cannot achieve peace. Why not? Why can we have all the resources and still not get it? Well, the problem is we've often merely looked at the symptoms and we haven't dug down and looked at the root of the problem, gotten an actual diagnosis. You know, merely being able to describe symptoms and alleviate them doesn't mean you've understood the real problem. And so to understand the real problem, we have to back up and remember the original plan to do that. I want you to imagine with me for a minute. Imagine something better than even John Lennon and Yoko Ono could imagine. Imagine a world where you wake up perfectly refreshed. All day you get to do what you want. And at the end of the day, you're actually glad you did what you wanted. You get to eat great food. You get to go play with friends. And there's never any fighting. Never any backbiting, teasing, drama Everyone is nice to your face and behind your back. You go home and your family treats you with respect and you actually all love being together. No one around you ever gets sick and you've never even heard of the word death. What is that? Throughout the day, you happily think about God. You enjoy praying to him. There's no sense of guilt and you get to talk and spend time with him. You don't cringe over what you've done or have guilt over your past. This world seems so fantastic, it almost seems like make-believe. Yet that is the way God intended the world, in the way Adam and Eve enjoyed it. They experienced the fullest sense of shalom, of wholeness, in the way God intended. They were in perfect harmony with themselves, with others, with God, with the world this is the way God created everything. And yet we don't need imagination to realize that's not what we live now. So turn, please, with me to Genesis chapter 3, and there we'll see why all of this has broken so badly. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read verses 7 through 19. And as we get ready to read that, we need to remember that the serpent had lied, and he'd "'told Eve, look, if you do this, your eyes will be opened. "'You'll know good and evil.' "'And then says, verse 7, after they ate, "'then the eyes of both were opened, "'and they knew that they were naked, "'and they sewed fig leaves together "'and made themselves loincloths. "'And they heard the sound of the Lord God "'walking in the garden in the cool of the day, "'and the man and his wife hid themselves "'from the presence of the Lord God "'among the trees of the garden.' because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and on dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband... You shall return. This passage is really showing us that we lost the wholeness that God had intended for us in three unique and clear ways. First, and foundationally, we lost peace with God. In some ways, Satan's words were true because Eve's eyes were opened, but they were not open to what she expected. They were not open to life, but death. They immediately feared God's gaze. They feared punishment rather than having their eyes open to life they now were open to see the tragedy that sin brought and yet god graciously rather than coming and immediately punishing them he comes and asks questions he's trying to lead adam to repentance yet adam does not respond in kind for he implicitly blames god and eve well it's the woman you gave to me that's the problem And yet, God is trying to bring grace. Well, God brings grace, but He also gave judgment. And in verses 13-19, through each one receives a judgment in relation to their being, their task, and their God-given roles. The ultimate punishment, though, was being sent away from God. Since God made us to be with Him, alienation and separation from Him is the biggest curse. Now, Each of us is born dead in our sins. We are no longer spiritually alive. And we have brought the curse upon us that we are now not at peace with God. Each of us now instinctively wants to live for ourselves. We want to consider what we want more important than others. And we don't want to submit to God or others. And then that then spills over to the other areas where we've lost peace. Second, we lost peace with people. Even before God came, Adam and Eve were ashamed of each other and clothed themselves. Our shame before God then leads to shame before others. This then works to putting others down because Adam immediately throws Eve under the bus. We may think that we started diverting blame now, but it's been going on since the first sin. We put others down To build ourselves up. And it's not hard to understand. If sin is the desire to run my life the way I want. Then inevitably there's going to be conflict. Because I'm going to want to live life this way. And someone I'm related to is going to want to live it differently. And so then there is conflict. If neither one of us will submit our desire to the other. If it's always my way or the highway. Conflict will rule our relationships. We even see this uniquely in the marriage relationship because the Lord says to the woman, you shall desire, your desire shall be for your husband, verse 16. Now that might sound like a good thing. But if you look at the next chapter, verse 6, there it's talking about Cain and it says, Cain, sin's desire is for you. In other words, the word desire used in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 is to control you. So, back to Genesis 3, Eve, your desire is to control your husband. Cain, sin's desire is to control you. And so marriage now becomes a conflict of who will have control. And it's not just marriage relationships. Genesis 4, we see the first murder. And we don't have to do research, do studies, to recognize the conflict in the world has existed ever since. Just this year, we ended a war in Afghanistan, and almost immediately, we watched the Taliban swiftly take control and unleash all kinds of havoc and revenge on those who were left behind. In our country, we've seen race riots, government buildings taken over. We get quickly divided over race issues, abortion, tax rates, and which form of government should we have. In our homes, we battle over anything and everything. And on top of that, we have conflict, not just with people out there, we have conflict inside here. We praise and laud ourselves only to turn around and beat ourselves up. We want everyone to know about us. Well, that is, we want them to know all the good we do, and we're afraid if they find out all the things that we hope they never learn, our secret thoughts or dark things we've done. We claim everyone's basically good but we're petrified if everyone learned all that we've ever said or done. As Isadora Duncan said, I've never been alone that my heart did not ache for a peace and joy I've never found. So we lost peace with God, and that then led to us leading peace with others. And thirdly, we lost peace with the created world. Because Genesis 3, 17-19, tells of how now Adam is going to have to work by the sweat of his brow, To get food. The world has been cursed, and so we're constantly having to combat weeds, insects, disasters. Anything built is immediately beginning to deteriorate, rust, rot. Ultimately, the ground we struggle against will win, for we are dust and we will return to dust. As with the first two curses, we see this effect all around of us. Five years of drought give way to too much rain and flooding. Just this last winter, we endured bitter cold that left many having rolling power outages, no water, and over 100 people died in Texas. And so we all can recognize the brokenness of our world. And we've strived hard to fix it. We've poured literally trillions of dollars to fix and have a whole world, and yet we can't do it. And so we wonder and ask, is there any hope for peace Well, we see the hope right here in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, God not only gives curses, He also gives hope. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promises a future child who will come and defeat the devil. Though we sinned, God desired peace, restoration, reconciliation. For this to happen, though, not only does Satan need to be crushed, but the very problem of why we don't have peace, sin, needs to be defeated. You know, sin is the problem that is our barrier with God. We see that not just in Genesis 3, but throughout Scripture. Isaiah 59 1 through 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened so that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And yet that's not the whole message, because that same book, Isaiah, declares what we read earlier, that a prince of peace is coming, and his reign will go on forever with peace. And this will happen because as Isaiah also declares, Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded For our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. That brought us peace. And with his stripes. We are healed. Thus when Jesus the Messiah comes. Zechariah the father of John the Baptist prophesies. He came the Messiah. To guide us into paths of peace. The angels declare what we read earlier. Glory to God in the highest and upon earth. Peace. With those he is pleased. Jesus came to bring peace. He was born to bring peace, but for that peace to come, he would have to conquer sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus did this on the cross. And that's why Paul writes in Colossians 1, 19-20, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of God of his cross. We see the devil defeated, and thus Romans sixteen twenty declares, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. And normally we don't think of someone who goes around crushing others, being a peacemaker. But for lasting and true peace to come, Jesus had to crush the devil, death, and sin. There on the cross, justice was perfectly made, and God perfectly brought us peace. In the gospel, we see true peace and true justice. Or as Psalm 85.10 beautifully says, Mm -hmm. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. So Jesus brings complete and full peace. Shalom. And thus, the three areas in which we lost peace, Jesus restores that peace. The first place we lost it was peace with God. And we see that Jesus Brought us peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is the big word. It's a legal term. It's a term that means you are declared righteous. Not just not guilty, but that in God's sight you are declared righteous through Jesus coming and living and dying and rising again. We are given a perfect life. When we trust Jesus, when we confess our sins and trust what he did, God no longer sees our sins, but rather he put those on Jesus. And he no longer sees us just with a clean slate. He sees us having lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. And since the curse of sin is due to our rebellion against God, the root cause is fixed. Jesus came and took sin and then gave us righteousness, so that we might have shalom. And having our relationship restored to God is not an incidental or extra part of knowing peace, but rather it's the foundational aspect of knowing true peace. Tragically, many people think they can find peace without God. Their imagines think of a place where there's no heaven, of living only for today. But you'll never know true and lasting peace without having it, through God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And even in Jesus' life, we begin to see the effects of the curse being turned back, and shalom, peace coming. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to an open dinner at a Pharisee's house, and while there, this woman who is known in the city to be a sinner comes, and out of love for Jesus is weeping on His feet, And then she takes her hair and starts wiping his feet. And the religious leader thinks, if he was a prophet, he would know what type of woman is doing that. And yet Jesus, though she doesn't say a word, her actions spoke a thousand for her. And Jesus realizes she is recognizing her sin. She is recognizing who he is. And thus Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He is declaring, look, you have peace with God because you know you're a sinner. You know who I am and you are now trusting and following me. Not only did Jesus bring peace with God, but also he fixed the second issue, peace with others. If you're wanting to start a new company or launch a new organization, you would want to get together a group of people who are all like-minded, all going in the same direction. And yet when Jesus got together, his group, in his group, he had one man who was a tax collector, someone who supported the Roman government. And yet another one of his 12 followers was a zealot, a man who wanted and was determined to overthrow the Roman government. Why would Jesus bring people on the two most extreme ends of the political spectrum? Because he's showing in me there's restoration. Restoration there's peace. When you realize that He is what life is about, then the other things don't become unimportant, but they take on a much lesser importance. Thus Paul writes in Ephesians two thirteen through 14 But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility." Jesus should break down all the divisions that we created up with other people to make us different. You know, we are all made in God's image. And Jesus brings salvation to all types of people. No race, no sex, no nation, no class is better than others. But in Christ, we are all one as well. Since God made peace with us while we were still enemies we can then extend that same peace to others. In November 1942, the worst thing imaginable happened to Michiharo Shinya, at least in his opinion. His Japanese ship had been sunk and he had been taken a prisoner of war. Yet though he hated his captors and wished to die, he was shocked at their kindness and love towards him. He didn't know what this thing was, Christmas Day. And yet, though a prisoner of war, they brought him presents on Christmas Day. Why would these people do this? And it would take much time for Michahar later to come and know the Prince of Peace. But as he saw the peace of others who knew the Prince of Peace, he wanted to know more. As Jesus gives us peace with God, that then gives us the resources to make peace with others, even our enemies but it's not just peace with god peace with others there's also a restored peace internally as we know that jesus controls the past and the future we can have peace as we have the forgiveness that only jesus can give us we don't have to beat ourselves up as we know that we need his forgiveness it keeps us from puffing ourselves up thus as we read from isaiah 26 3 earlier you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so Jesus clearly showed in his life, he brought peace with God for us. For us, he brought peace with others and also peace with creation. Colossians 1:19 through 20 says that he reconciled all things in heaven and on earth. You know, Jesus bringing peace with this created order was seen in at least two unique ways. You all know the story. Mark 4, Jesus has a long day of ministry and they cross the Sea of Galilee at night and a storm arises. And what is Jesus doing? Asleep because he has peace because he can trust his Father. And yet the disciples are panic-stricken and they wake him up and challenge him. Don't you care about us? Don't you love us? And then it says, Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You rebuke someone when they did something wrong. Jesus rebuked the storm because winds and waves were not originally intended by God to be harmful. When Jesus acts, nature is restored to the way that God always intended it. To bring comfort and joy, not destruction and grief. It's not just nature out there though because part of the curse is we return to dust we die and yet the chapter after that a woman comes to jesus and she touches his garment and she's healed in other places jesus brings the dead back to life he's showing that he brings shalom that we are no longer under the curse when we have peace with him and so all of this jesus telling the sinful woman she has peace with God, him uniting adversaries, him calming storms and removing sins, sorry, yes, and diseases and death. All of that is a foreshadowing. It's an appetizer of the complete peace we'll have with Jesus when he comes again. Jesus came to bring peace and he'll give us that shalom in every sense. And yet we also know he has not yet come again. And that's why he told his disciples, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thus there is still sadness, there is still grief, as we lack the wholeness that God intended for us. As we lose friends, as we lose family members, as good times end, as conflict ravages our relationships, we long for the Prince of Peace to come back. So do you have shalom? Do you have wholeness? Do you have peace? Do you know peace with God and with others? Do you have peace with yourself? Peace with creation? Perhaps in your life this talk of peace seems rather idealistic, a little too optimistic. Well, if there is no God, then there is no hope for peace. But if Jesus is real, if the prince of peace came in the flesh and was born and then lived and died to conquer sin then there is hope for peace. The New England Historical Society tells of one Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem that they say was a testament to the resilience of the human spirit. <coughs> he wrote the poem on Christmas Day in 18 18- sixty three as he wrestled with doubts over whether good could prevail in the midst of a civil war, and just hearing that his oldest son was wounded in battle. Longfellow had already been in deep grief because two years earlier in eighteen sixty one his wife had died. He had courted her for seven years, and though she often didn't express interest, finally he won her heart and then they lived happily for eighteen years, having six children. He was forever changed by her death, though. And on Christmas Day the next year, 1862, he recorded in his journal, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. Now, a year later, 1863, and his eldest son lay wounded from a war that was ravaging the nation. And he heard Christmas bells ringing in Cambridge and singing, Peace on Earth. And he wrote this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And though how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent, and made for loan the households born, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He's sitting there going, this doesn't make sense. We're singing of peace on earth, goodwill to men, and I've lost my wife. My son has just been wounded. We're in civil war. How can we sing of peace on earth, goodwill to men? And yet his poem didn't end there. He then writes, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. You know, unlike the New England Historical Society, that's not the resilience of the human spirit. That is a faith in God. That is a trust in the Prince of Peace. It's a reality that looks at the world and it sees all the brokenness. It doesn't make everything wonderful. It goes, This world is broken, but you do know, you know what? God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right shall prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Do you know this peace? It begins by trusting and following the Prince of Peace. It continues when He returns to restore us to Himself and set up His kingdom for the increase of His government and of its peace will have no end. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do long for that day when there will be complete and total peace, when it will not just be for one idyllic day, but for day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century upon millennia upon time to no end. Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son to bring us that peace. May we trust Him even in the midst of of the despair that we have at times because of this broken world. It's in His name we pray. Amen.